authors and editors who work together to advance literature and reading through educational programs and to defend free expression whenever and wherever it is threatened in this country and around the world. For more on what we do, please visit www.pen.org. Our subject tonight is an inexhaustible one that people have been talking about since at least the 1970s when the appearance of books like Ragtime, The Executioner's Song, and The Public Burning, to pick just three inevitable examples among many possibilities, seemed to signal some kind of seismic shift in the terrain of the fictional world. Arbitrary as any particular date for this putative change might be, it seems to have progressed and even accelerated in the subsequent two decades. Meanwhile, on the non-fictional side, historians and biographers have continued as they have since Herodotus to struggle with how to breathe flesh onto the bones of historical fact and increasingly to posit the slippery, illusory character of fact and to question its adequacy as a vehicle to historical truth. The issue from the fictional perspective was starkly, if tendentiously, stated last year by the novelist and essayist Jonathan Dee in his Harper's piece uh, called The Reanimators on the Art of Literary Grave Robbing. Uh, Dee announced, reality's triumph over the novelist's powers of invention is nearly complete, not by virtue of fiction's diminished importance or diminished sales, but because the notion that novels are merely a kind of cliff's notes to history has entered the consciousness of the novelists themselves. And he concluded ominously, in fact, every psychohistorical novel furthers fiction's abdication of its own uniquely, transcendently unreal power to apprehend and meditate on the nature of our existence. To help us sort out this confusion, we have some of the leading contemporary practitioners of both fiction and nonfiction. Joyce Carol Oates's new novel, Blonde, stakes out new territory in this discussion with a fictive life of Marilyn Monroe. Another kind of example is Russell Banks, who also turned to history last year in his acclaimed novel, Cloud Splitter, based on the life of John Brown. From the non-fictional perspective, we have biographer James Atlas, general editor of the new and already very successful Lipper Penguin Short Lives, which has responded uh, with a projected 36 titles to the burgeoning interest in biography. Um, item. The subject of Atlas's forthcoming biography, Saul Bellow, has himself just published a novel, the hero of which strongly resembles a recently deceased <coughs> public figure who was the author's close personal friend. Simon Shama is the author of a number of his important historical works, some incorporating narrative techniques drawn from fiction, including The Embarrassment of Riches, Citizens, and Dead Certainties. His most recent book is Rembrandt's Eyes. Millicent Dillon has also traversed these porous boundaries, having moved back and forth between biography and fiction with three novels, biographical studies of Paul and Jane Bowles, Isadora Duncan, and Mary Cassatt, and now a new novel, Harry Gold, which treats the case of the man who stole the atom secrets from the Soviet Union. Our excellent guide through this thicket is Charles McGrath, who as the editor since 1995 of the New York Times Book Review has to read almost everything and make sense of it. Before coming to the Times, he had a 15-year career at the New Yorker, including eight years as deputy editor uh, when he edited the works of Martin Amos, Julian Barnes, and Muriel Spark, among many others. Welcome, please, Charles McGrath. Thank you. Uh, one of the many pleasures of editing the book review, besides reading the books, is fielding all the complaints I get. Um, <laughs> Is it on? 
Is this better? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I, just, I said one of the many pleasures of editing the book review, besides reading the books, is fielding all the complaints. <laughs> um, <clears throat> most of the complaints are on the order of how could you be so stupid, insensitive, <laughs> or corrupt, or all three, to allow so-and-so to review my book. Um, lately, though, I've been hearing from a crowd that I think of as the genre police. Um, the last fall, for example, I had many letters and almost as many voicemails from people demanding that Edmund Morris's Dutch be removed from the nonfiction list and instantly moved over to fiction. Um, a little later, I had a surprising flurry of postcards from Limerick, Ireland. And I think that this, in fact, was, was a, a committee job. And the, the, the drift here was that the good citizens of Limerick felt that the city as portrayed in Angel's Ashes bore so little resemblance to their hometown that they too wished that the McCourt book should be moved from fiction to nonfiction. And just today, and this is true, I swear, I got a letter from France pointing out that both Angel's Ashes and Tiz are there treated as fiction and asking me, do the French know something you don't? <laughs> um, the traffic I think is mostly in one direction, that is people complaining that, that works of purported nonfiction are in fact so rife with error that they need to be moved over. But lately there's even been some traffic going the other way. I actually had a preemptive voicemail a couple of weeks ago about the, the novel Ravelstein, which Mike Roberts just mentioned, and this voice who didn't leave a name said, I hope you're not going to treat that as fiction. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and recently, I even got a three-page letter from someone in a Marilyn Monroe fan club complaining about Joyce Carol Oates' book and listing all the factual errors in her novel. <laughs> um, the only reason we, I haven't heard about Millicent and Dillon is I, it's not out yet. Um, so it seems fair to me, I think, to say that we're living in an age of, of porosity when the traditional boundaries between fact and fiction have become permeable, with factual narratives borrowing techniques from fiction. The Morris is, is the most notorious example. A better example, I would suggest, is Simon Chalmers' Rembrandt, which in the best sense reads like a novel. It has some of the textures and, and detail that we expect from fiction. Um, on the other hand, <coughs> we have fictional narrative borrowing the authority of fact and maybe the glamour, <coughs> if you want, of real-life characters in historical incident. It can be slighting, as in the, the prologue, the wonderful prologue of Don DeLillo's Underworld, if you'll remember, with Jackie Gleason and Frank Sinatra and J. Edgar Hoover all watching Bobby Thompson's home run. Or it can be more rigorous. I think it's, it's somewhat surprising to see two of our best and senior novelists i.e. Joyce Carrolts and Russell Banks, rather late in their career, turning to huge historical subjects. You think of this as something that people do uh, when, they, when they're young or perhaps not at all. Um, <laughs> or never again. Or never again. <laughs> 
and, and, and in some cases, I think this porosity or permeability, as we want to call it, has reached such extremes that it's almost hard to know what's what. The, the best and I think in some ways most frustrating example I can think of is a book by Paul Theroux that came out a couple of years ago called My Other Life, which featured a character called Paul Theroux. It featured real life people like Anthony Burgess and the Queen of England, and yet we were told that not necessarily everything in here was to be believed. Um, so I think there are a number of questions that might usefully be asked tonight. One is almost metaphysical, and that is, is there such a thing as factuality when you're writing a literary text? As soon as you commit words to paper, aren't you, to one extent or another, making something up? Another question we might ask is, are there any rules? What are the writer's responsibilities, if any, to the truth and to the reader? Is there a difference between a historical novel, so-called, and a novel that uses historical characters? What's the difference, if you're a historian, between reconstructing a scene and making one up? Um, but first, I think we ought to ask whether the problem is really as new as it seems, and I therefore would like to turn to Simon Chama, our historian. Is it this new? Um, no, you know, what is? Um, but um, before, I have to just add a footnote to Tripp's um, introduction, because before your time, actually, I, I've only written one novel, um, or paired novellas, Dead Certainties, um, in, in which I did actually invent dialogue, invented all sorts of things, and therefore I came clean and said, you know, this cannot be thought of as a history book, it has to be thought of as a novel. And um, I got a phone call and tried to urge my publisher completely unsuccessfully to list it under fiction. And I got a call from the New York Times, uh, the Sunday Times Book Review, <laughs> saying, um, um, well, w w what is it? There was no genre police, but there was clearly a genre you know, inquiry going on. <laughs> and I said, well, it's a novel. You know, there's stuff that I have no idea was actually said. There are people, things that got done in this book. But as soon as you actually cross the line to conscious invention, really, then it becomes a novel, and that's why I've said it is one. So I said, well, um, I think we're going to take a vote on it. I'm sure you, you know, it's this democratic <laughs> regime. No, no, no. So I said, okay, but your view is that it should be listed under fiction. I said, got it. It was listed under non-fiction, of course, actually. No idea what the, what the vote was. Um, <laughs> so what's, a, what's a, a writer going to do? Um, it's not new, in I fact. I think if I can interject, the answer is very simple, I think. It's whatever the bookstores say it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, fear that, I fear that's right. Um, I, it, it's, of course, actually a typical sort of a pen-organized evening to have someone who does the introduction, Michael Roberts, actually, um, lift one's first and, in fact, only reference, really, because Herodotus is our man, actually. Um, I, I think Chip was saying, or someone was saying, you know, is this new or did it all start in the 1970s, really? Well, no, it started a bit before that. Herodotus, you know, the father of history, was this shocking liar, really. Um, <laughs> Macaulay describes him as delightful child, you know, who babbles away, and you've no idea whether anything he's saying really was, you know, taken as it were straight off Teletubbies or was actually the truth. It's <laughs> so a half gossip, hearsay, rumor, invention. 
And Thucydides, of course, you know, comes on very much as the kind of genre cop, actually, taking Herodotus to task for sort of disgracing the good name of history, for actually dealing in the kind of murky waters of myth. And Thucydides said it's a shocking thing to do and clearly resents Herodotus's sort of patriarchal status and the founding of this genre. And Thucydides said, you know, I wouldn't dream myself. You know, one must be critical with the sources and so on. One must be um, honest and, um, and uh, remain relentlessly anchored in the data, or Greek words to that effect. <laughs> and he says, um, you may, however, notice that certain relatively important passages in the history of the Peloponnesian War, I wasn't actually there when Pericles was giving the speech, um, but I'm going to... I see uh, uh, there's Noonan there. But on the other hand, I think I know what he would have said, actually. And out rolls, in fact, you know, the, the passage in Thucydides, which we all remember as almost sort of justifying the ideology and principles of that extraordinary book. So very early on, actually, there is the sort of, you know, caveat emptor issue being... Uh, taken on board by those who commit history, as it were, not commit history, who report on what history commits, but who, even as they're trying to determine what the rules are, have a very hard job not only abiding by them, but by actually executing them faithfully and in all good conscience. No one's suggesting Thucydides was um, really deliberately, you know, tendentious, or that uh, even worse, that he's really committing some sort of non-fictional fraud, actually. He, he, this was all done in good faith, and it was owned up to. It was owned up to. That's the most important thing. I'll shut up in a minute. I just want to say, though, that a little much more recently, as recently as 1946, um, the person who's written the greatest meditation on what it is to do history, in my view, of all, is G.C. Collingwood. Metaphysics, again, absolutely chip, hit the hammer, you know, the, hit it right on the, on the spot. Um, Wayne Fleet, professor of metaphysics, Oxford University, the idea of history, an extraordinary meditation on the imagination. And um, it's partly a polemic, it's true, against what he calls citizen-paced history. But Collingwood is quite, he doesn't really see the problem. The historian's obligation is to tell the truth, something I absolutely firmly believe. I'm, I'm happy to hear and, and and flattered to hear that Chip thinks that parts of Rembrandt's eyes partake of a kind of literary work, which I, was certainly the intention, but there is absolutely nothing in, in, invented in that book. Um, and Collingwood says uh, that history will not be history, uh, not only if it doesn't tell the truth, but also if it lacks the faculty of imagination. Imagination is everything. That's what draws us close to the world of the novelist. But imagination does not mean you make things up. Imagine, you know, someone who came to dinner last night. Um, imagine the inside of an egg from looking at the outside of an egg. Imagine the back of the moon before we actually had orbital photos of it. And you're imagining something is there or something that you have experienced or something that was what truly happened, but nonetheless, the reach of the imagination is necessarily invoked, I think, necessarily has to be practiced in order, really, for there to be uh, coherence and reality and uh, to build the kind of presence of the, of the past with any kind of uh, power and persuasiveness. Collingwood, again, says something very beautifully and poetically put. He was a real 
as much of a poet as you could be and still be the Wayne Fleet Professor of Metaphysical Philosophy, I think. He said really that the historian really, what he's doing is that the sort of, I'm sure I didn't say struts, but poles really um, are planted in the ground are your authorities, are your sources, sources you have to question. There are no self-proposed, self-verifying facts in history. There are facts, of course, but there are no, as it were, facts which necessarily recommend themselves as significant and shaping to one's historical account without a priori historical selection, without our imaginative response declaring that these should be important. These are the struts, imagine, and across, on these struts, really, across them, the historian uses the imagination to weave a kind of web and if he does his weaving work well, rather like a kind of gossamer web, it will, the fabric will come together, will start to have kind of color and form and persuasiveness and coherence and credibility. And the imagination is, is, is something we, I think, ought to share, ought to try and share with the makers of fiction, but we're using our imagination to tell the truth about the past. That, I firmly believe is not even an oxymoron, certainly not a contradiction in terms. Let's look at it the other way also, though. <clears throat> um, at a certain point historically, we had novels that were pretending to be history. You think back to the novels of Defoe um, in the 17th century when the novel was just beginning, quite deliberately borrowed the techniques of history as if, as if fiction were in, were in dubious repute. And I'm wondering, and maybe some of our novelists could address this, I'm wondering if we're not somewhat in that state now. Um, let's, maybe we, let's address the Jonathan D. point. Um, does, does apparent factuality have a kind of appeal now um, for a novelist that perhaps it didn't? And one, I'll be quite cynical for a minute, one appeal obviously is we know these days that nonfiction sells much better than fiction, which I think is probably a reversal of, of what it was 40 or 50 years ago. So why doesn't one of you novelists well, weigh in? Maybe I could take this to the personal level for a minute. Um, the book that I've just published is called Harry Gold. It's a novel. It actually began in my mind, is a biography. But to go back even further than that, I met Harry Gold once about 50 years ago. I should tell you this story because it's a very odd story. I was living in Queens as a young woman with my mother and my older brother. My older brother was working in a laboratory in Brooklyn. There was a guy working in the laboratory, this man called Harry Gold was kind of a poor schnook, and my brother, who never wanted to invite anybody to dinner, said he'd like to invite Harry Gold to come to dinner. So one night, he invites Har Harry Gold, comes to dinner. Harry Gold comes in the door. I'm going out the door. I have never seen this man before. I look at him, and I have the strangest experience I don't understand that experience at all. It makes me extremely uneasy. I was not a writer at the time. I was working in science, and I think, I don't understand this. I don't understand this man. I went away, and I 
forgot about it. Three years later, I was in Los Angeles, and I went out to the corner newsstand, and I looked down at the newspaper pack, and it said, there on that paper is a picture of Harry Gold, and it says, Adam Spy Confesses. And I think, this is look, Harry Gold, and he was an Adam Spy all the time. Maybe that had something to do. I was still not writing then. Some years later, I wrote, started writing. I wrote fiction and biography. And I thought, in the mid-'80s, that man has been, I've been thinking about that man for a long time. Now, it occurred to me that I could go and find, uh, that I could write a biography of him. And so I went and did all the research. He had died by this time. I went to the FBI files and read thousands of pages. I went to see his lawyer. I went to visit his brother. I went to see a woman that he'd worked with at the end of his life. Nothing. When I got through with it, I had all these facts, but he was a flat character. I just put the stuff away. Then I did a book on Paul Bowles. That was the last book I did. And after that book was done, a conversation came back to me. Paul, who was a composer as well as a writer, uh, was somebody who was very reluctant to talk about anything, particularly if it was about him, or he, would make, he was very evasive and secretive and made up lots of stories, but he was very good at it. One of the things I asked him was, I'd want to know something about how you hear things. And he said to me, well, I'll tell you how I hear things. When I go on the subway under the East River, at the midpoint, I hear a strange hum. And I said to him, I don't hear a hum. I get this pressure in my ears. That was a conversation that came back to me. At that moment, and here is where I think the whole question of purposefulness, for me at least, is crucial. At that point, Harry Gold was on the subway going under the East River, reached the midpoint, and heard this hum and had this pressure in his ears. From that moment on, now that was an alteration of fact. Harry Gold, had, when he was a spy, and this is the beginning, he's still being a spy, Harry Gold was not living in, in New York. So with that one alteration of fact, the rest of the thing began to change, and all of the stuff that I'd learned factually became, as it were, an, a kind of an undercurrent for me. And I followed it, followed the timeline exactly, but I also was free from that point on to do what I wanted to. So the thing that I'm trying to say is the imagination comes in both in fiction and, I think, in biography when you least expect it. Let's, let's ask the, the two other novelists, though, who didn't begin, I don't think, in quite the same way. Both. Russell and you, Joyce, you chose historical subjects. And one could argue that you were tying your own hands. You could have written a book about a Hollywood star that wasn't recognizably Marilyn Monroe. Russell, you mm -hmm. could have written a novel about an abolitionist mm -hmm. who wasn't recognizably John Brown. Then might have been uh, perceived as a Romana Clay, however, um, and um, thought to be about a um, University of Chicago uh, philosopher and, <laughs> and, uh, and so on. Um, no, I, um, I have a problem with, with the vocabulary as we're using it right now uh, of subject. Um, 
the, the word subject or what a novel is about. Um, and I think there's an essential difference here between uh, history or journalism, nonfiction on the one hand, and fiction and I would say poetry on the other, at least for me, in so far as fiction, like poetry, has no subject. And I, and I discovered this inadvertently and without knowing it was the case um, when I first um, published, when I published my first book with a commercial publisher um, and was asked by the publicist what was my book about, uh, my novel about, so that it could be better marketed. Um, as you noted earlier, um, um, the New York Times Book Review um, declares a book to be fiction or nonfiction uh, depending upon what the bookstores say it is. And the publisher at the other end of the, of the pipe um, anticipates that the bookstores need to say whether it's fiction or nonfiction or history or whatever in order to uh, put it in a certain section in the bookstore. So they want to categorize it too. They want to target the market. Um, you don't write that way with that in mind, certainly. Um, my, I no more know what my novel is about um, than I know what my dreams are about. And my relation to fact as a novelist is very close to my relation to fact as a dreamer. Um, I don't foreground um, or background um, anything on the basis, any fact, any detail, let's say, uh, any element of, of a work of fiction because it happens to be historical or because it happens to be autobiographical or because it happens to be something I read in the newspaper yesterday or a story I overheard in a bar or something that happened to my brother um, or something that didn't happen to anybody so far as I know, ever. They all remain on the same plane of reality for me. That is to say, they all remain on the plane of imagery, which I use then um, with a kind of, of um, freedom um, that I suppose a poet or a fiction writer uh, takes for granted to arrange into um, a pattern that makes a story. Ultimately, a story is its own self and not about something other than itself, just as a poem is its own self and not about anything else. This to me is the crucial difference. And the great and, and, and long discussion um, that prompts uh, panels like this, and that has been going on really um, since um, the so-called nonfiction novel in, appeared in the 70s with Capote, and, or in the 60s with Capote and, and, uh, and then uh, Mailer and Wolf and so forth, is really to me a, um, a concern that grows unconsciously perhaps out of um, marketing strategies. Um, generated really by publishers uh, in the first place and then afterwards by retailers, retailers of books. Let me just be literal for a minute. <clears throat> Your John Brown is not exactly the John Brown of a dream. He, he lives in, in Lake Placid. He goes out west. Mm -hmm. The outline of his life pretty much used to what, to what we think of as the outline of John Brown's life. Well, the interests of, of plausibility are what kept me uh, adhering to some degree, but only to some degree, to um, historical received knowledge about John Brown. Um, and um, I mean, just as it would if I were writing a novel uh, set in New York City today, um, in the interest of plausibility, I couldn't have uh, Broadway going from the Upper East Side to the Lower West Side. Uh, because most people Why know not? Gabriel Garcia Marquez would. <laughs> I bet he wouldn't. <laughs> Uh, because most people who read the book, uh, just as I, would have trouble imagining it. It would be a disjoint, uh, and, and, and it would break the, the suspension of disbelief uh, that I would be interested in sustaining. I mean, I could do it, and I would certainly could justify it, um, 
perhaps, uh, throughout the work, but um, it would have to be a somewhat different aesthetic um, program than the one that I, I was working with, which is that of conventional realism. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it was just that I only adhered to history in the interests of plausibility, which, required, which was required, from my point of view, to obtain uh, the suspension of disbelief, necessary for the dreaming state that I was talking about. Joyce, what about you? Well, I tend to agree with Russell that, um, does this work? Can you hear me? People say they can. Get right up on it. Is this better now? Yeah. Well, I think of works of the imagination as primarily dealing with voice and language. As Russell said with imagery, and, the, and these images do tend to float up from the unconscious, the wor a work of, of um, fiction in contrast to biography tends to be very selective. And in writing about a complex and various life, like the life of the person we think we know of as Marilyn Monroe, basically I had to drop out so many facts so that it, it, it emerges as a kind of simplified dream. I suppose I had in mind something like Melville's Moby Dick that was actually a white whale. And he was writing in a meticulous detail about whales and the part of the novel that's so wonderful, I think, is just the reliance upon the objective world and it's all there, it's very cataloged and very beautifully written. But then it's mythic and one would not really think that Moby Dick was just any whale. So I guess Marilyn Monroe became my Moby Dick, so to speak, <laughs> where I'm working with mythic structures and images and much, much that is imagined, I'm basically all of it's imagined, but I try not to invent very much. I suppose it's just a matter of taste. I think Russell's position is a little more radical than my own. I would feel that I wanted to adhere to as much reality as, as is possible and not be inventing very much. I tend to love reality. <laughs> There's something very wonderful. There's a poetry of reality in working with what's given and trans maybe transforming it in some way but not really violently changing it. In Shakespeare's plays, for instance, whether they're history plays or, or about fabulous situations, nobody really thinks that people were speaking in such words of surpassing beauty. It's obviously elevated in its poetry, yet there may be some residual reality. And what we're all working with, I'm sure this is true for Millicent as well as, as Russell, and myself is what I would call psychological realism the inner poetic and spiritual realism of characters who may have had a historical um, existence, but as we reimagine them, they become works of, of uh, fiction. Jim, how are you, are you comfortable with all this? I, I suddenly uh, realized that you two have written a novel. Oh, <laughs> yes, I was hoping you wouldn't mention that. <laughs> uh, that certainly cured me of wanting to make it up. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yes, the, but even that novel, uh, which uh, had its, uh, its fans, I discovered 16 years after it was written, uh, it was, began as a memoir. I, I also, and that's why I now write biography and memoir exclusively, because I do feel that what the novelist does is something so entirely different. It's interesting to me that you and that, that Joyce and uh, Russell are struggling with this issue of of how close to the truth they should be and what they should use uh, in creating their fictions. For the biographer, it's a completely 
other struggle. All we want to do is break free from this prison of facts mm. and just mm. make it up. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it, it requires tremendous restraint not to do that. Uh, and sometimes you're doing it inadvertently. I mean, uh, because what, what, what you discover really about fact when you're a biographer very early is a lesson in humility, uh, namely that to really reconstruct something as it happened is uh, beyond inordinately difficult. It's impossible to do and, and you really realize that uh, in a way what you're writing is very close to fiction and your goal is in fact very much the same which is to get at the deeper truth. You're using a different narrative means in that the biographer is ostensibly, I should say, uh, trying to deal with things as they really happened, and the novelist is trying to deal with things also as they really happened, but within a different construct of fantasy and imagination. Yet the two are remarkably alike in, in the end result. It's really what I'm saying, the art that brings out truth. It's not the genre that brings out truth. It seems to me that there is something that the biographer does that has in it the quality of fiction. And uh, is one area that is in some way, and this uh, reflects what James just said, that, uh, un it's uncontainable and you can't manage it. It's the relationship between the writer of the biography and the subject. I mean, there is a subject mm -hmm. <laughs> in biography. This is a very odd relationship. You're telling and me. it gets odder and odder the more you go into it. You find yourself pulled toward the subject, hating the subject, loving the subject, thinking you're the subject. All of this happens. But what it means is, and this you will find, I think, if you read biographies with a kind of care and attention that you might read, say, a, a, a fine novel, you will see great shifts taking place <coughs> in, the, in that relationship. And it seems to me that it's in that area that, uh, I don't know whether you call it imagination or what it is, but there's a kind of an uncertainty that sometimes can give biography a, a wonderful quality, almost resembling fiction. I th am thinking, uh, for instance, of the, a really wonderful biography by Richard Holmes yeah. of Coleridge. Right. That is a truly wonderful biography. Right. And you f get so excited as you read that book, it's almost as though you are reading a wonderful work of fiction that is carrying you and you don't quite know why. And there's something about his relationship to Coleridge that is not only respectful, but also quite mysterious. So I think... Well, can I, uh, I mean, it's uh, Holmes, uh, it's the name I was just going to mention. It's Holmes, uh, it, the reason, one of the reasons why that two-volume biography is so astounding and many of the things that Holmes has written is because he has brooded self-consciously on the relationship of the biographer to the biography, to his subject, and the great classic, sorry, I don't mean to be giving everybody a, a must-reading list, beginning with, there will be a test, as you leave <laughs> it, um, is Footsteps. <clears throat> there is no greater book that I know of, actually, which is more astute and more profound. And in Footsteps, which is about Holmes's relationships with a series of romantic subjects, romantic in the sense of the romantic movement, Gerard de Nerval and Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft, begins with his relationship to, um, to Stevenson, 
um, when he's um, thinking about writing about, about Chris Stevenson, which doesn't actually come about um, wholly, and he's following the footsteps of um, Stevenson's Travels on a Donkey through the Savannah. And he thinks he's got Stevenson, at least he may never get Stevenson, but at least he's got the route right. And there's a particular bridge in which Holmes is interested. And, um, and he comes to the little village in a Savannah, I've forgotten which it is, and um, sees the bridge. And um, he says, yes, it looks old and it looks right. And he says, that's it. And he goes to the local bookstore and there is the, the inevitable kind of uh, you know. And he said, it turns Holmes around and he said, no, that's the bridge, and one <laughs> behind him, and this bridge, the real one, is broken. Mm. It doesn't, it was replaced. It do, this is, of course, the you know, metaphor from dreamland, <laughs> really, actually. So Holmes says, the bridges are always really going to be broken. And I don't know about you know, Millicent or, or James. I, when I was doing Rembrandt, I was, you know, for, where the, you know, there was no bridge at all because we have so few letters by Rembrandt, but so many letters by contemporaries about him. One's constantly in a state of sort of self-examination about one's position via V the subject, I think. So I want to say one other thing, though. Many of the things that Joyce Calleroats was saying about... Um, you know, fictions, fictions need, which is absolutely right, of course, to uh, pick and choose to kind of, you know, which facts to lose in order to create the, the compelling um, fiction reality, as it were. That's not another hopeless oxymoron. Uh, it, it is somewhat the same for history and biography. History certainly begins with a subtraction of facts, its form and purpose and significance come about with subtraction and loss. If you believe that your job as an historian, say you're writing about the Battle of Waterloo, or the life of Oliver Cromwell or something, is to report every known datum about that person, really, you will, you're hopelessly remote from the purposes of history. So consciously or not, really, um, finding the truth that counts. James was talking about getting to reality. One has to ask oneself, what is the reality that counts, that ultimately delivers some answer or some meditation about why we should care about the past, why this person signifies anything that matters to our understanding of the human condition, that always begins with cutting stuff away. Well, I, it seems to me that, that w yes, it does, but it's it's... Biography, of course, is, is primarily a matter of, of selection because, uh, as Lytton Strait, she says in a wonderful image, you, you go with your, out in your boat and you dip down your net and retrieve these facts, but then you've got to organize the facts. You can't, you can't use this vast uh, array of note cards and manuscripts and documents that you've assembled on your shelf. You, you have to select ruthlessly. And what is it that you're looking for? I think you're looking for the details that, that elicit character and life and that, that betray that what Bellow has an incredibly great image for this when he gave a eulogy for a friend of his who had died uh, a few years ago, someone he'd gone to high school with and she died in old age. And he said, her name was Yetta Barshevsky, and he said, he talked about the mysterious specificity 
of human beings, the essence that was Yetta, who was a person somewhat remarkable, not known to any of us, but remarkable in the way that we are all remarkable, that every person is remarkable, and that is through that mysterious specificity. And I think it's the finding of those details, the ones that Boswell fastened on in writing his Johnson, that are so important to us. So what you lose is sometimes uh, the big picture, the things that you would imagine to be significant. And what you search for are those incidents uh, and what uh, Johnson called the evanescent details that reveal character. You know, um, if I may, we're all being very democratic here as we appraise, um, on the one hand, uh, and compare uh, fiction and, um, and story, let's say, to, on the other hand, um, biography and history. Um, and, and I normally am democratic in my thinking and, um, and uh, my approach to these matters, and, and, I, and I resist having an hierarchy amongst um, works. Um, but I nonetheless... We're not going to be democratic now. Yeah. But nonetheless <laughs> <laughs> feel that um, I have to think about it. I, I don't, and I think it would be um, foolish for anyone to read fiction for history or biography. Uh, and yet I know that I have all my life read history and biography for story. Um, and what this suggests to me is that there is an hierarchy, that, that, that one of these uh, enterprises um, has a greater, uh, perhaps even universal reach story. Um, whereas the others are, by comparison, if you'll forgive me, biographers and historians, parochial and narrow um, uh, in that way. Well, I think there's another way of looking at it that could still be democratic. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in other words, now, you, when you're writing, you're not ordinarily thinking of the, of the reader. But one of the questions that I think it might be interesting to ask the other panelists is, what would be the, be the implied contract between the reader and the writer in this particular book? Mm -hmm. In other words, in the biography, what is the... That seems more obvious. What is the implied contract? In a book that partakes of both fiction and fact, what is the implied contract there? And maybe somebody's going to get mad. I don't know. But what do you, what do you think this implied mm -hmm. contract might be? Yeah. Um, shall I address it quickly and then let the others bounce to it? Um, it's very, that's, that's a very important question, I think. And, and I certainly have in my mind when I've written historical novel in this case, or any novel for that matter, that um, it is to be read um, in the context of other novels, and that is to be measured against other novels, and, and that's its aspiration. It, it adheres to the principles of storytelling, not to the principles of history or biography in any way, no matter what material, or journalism, no matter what material I might make that story out of. Uh, and that's quite a different contract, I think, than the that I ha feel uh, is uh, in existence or in function when I pick up a work of history or biography. That, so high-minded, Russell, I can't bear it. <laughs> you know, it's, um, <laughs> geez, I mean, you know, Dickens, Flaubert, Tolstoy, Lampedusa, I mean, some quite biggies there, really, all mm -hmm. of whom, sure, were telling stories, mm -hmm. but if you said to them, oh, come on, Leo, you know, it's just, it's just a story, you had nothing really to say about <laughs> history, and you said, yes, right, you know, there's nothing about history at all in there, you know, um, you, you, I mean, it would be ludicrously dis... I'm not saying you, you're being disingenuous, <laughs> 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 but, but there are some... Mm. 
writers of fiction mm -hmm. who utterly, even though I'm not wanting to blur the boundary between mm -hmm. ultimately having responsibility to tell the truth and having the freedom to create fiction, so I don't want to blur that boundary, mm -hmm. but I also do want to say, actually, in terms of revealing, t attempting to reveal truths about what it's like to be a human being, there is an absolutely shared purpose in some cases of history writing and in mm -hmm. some cases of fiction writing, of which, let's say, you know, education sentimentale is not a bad example. Yeah, and also I, I wonder, since we're being hierarchical here, I feel like uh, there is this assumption that, uh, that fiction somehow is... Uh, more of an art than, than history or biography. That, hic that, that fiction is really what you want to go for if you're going to attain the, uh, the expressive heights uh, uh, of literature that's most transcendent. And I, I really am not persuaded that this is so. I, I think that historically speaking, it was so at a certain moment, that in the 19th century, for example, uh, fiction was the dominant genre. Now we live in a society with different needs and requirements and forms of curiosity about human character and a hunger to know about ourselves that's not supplied by other social forms. And so we turn to history and biography. And that's why, as you said, I think they, they are now a more popular form or selling more than, than fiction, which isn't, you know, we're, we're not here to debate which is better, but each has its separate purpose. And uh, I think all biographers and historians really who, who, are, who aspire to the condition of art have the same ideas in mind that, that novelists have. And they use the same, they use slightly, they use radically different means to achieve identical ends biographies that are very carelessly you know, executed. I know I've opened biographies that have sort of just come into the house, and I see these long passages that are obviously, and an interviewer had a tape recorder going, and it's not edited, and it's just somebody talking, and it's just an interlude that's possibly fantastic. You know, somebody's confabulating, making up things about, about Norman Mailer, let's say. And then the no. biographer isn't, <laughs> well, I'm actually thinking of a Norm, Norman Merlin biography, which is very long, and I, I don't remember the name of the biographer. Peter Manson. Yeah. But now you, another uh, responsible bi biographer, would then try to check out some of the things that are alleged in these testimonies in terms of, you know, reality. But other biographers just publish it. They're yeah. not editing it. They don't okay. even seem, in some cases, to have read it. Right. Well, and but, but that's true of all. This is true of all forms. I mean, I don't. Th th that's but well, it's the form, and it's 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 the part in which a biography contains, I think, a lot of fiction, sometimes unwittingly. <laughs> yeah. To well, get back to the question that you brought up um, about factuality in a literary text or factuality in biography, is it possible that there is something happening to information? and what we think about information that is being modified in this world that we live in. So that it is n information and the relevant facts 
somehow do not have quite the same impact upon us that they once had, either more or less, I'm not sure. I'd be interested in how other people felt about that. Well, that also ties into something I was going to say, which is uh, it seems to me that in some ways we're living in a crisis of confidence in the fictional art. You're all, we're all talking about which art is, is looms higher in the hierarchy. But I would say that the whole memoir craze, um, where people, instead of writing a first novel, your first autobiographical novel, people now write a memoir, or they, or they write something that they sell as a memoir. And it's as if the fact that this supposedly really happened gives it a kind of interest, gives it a kind of authenticity that it wouldn't have if you had done what we used to think was the old magic, which is to take the facts and transform them. I think it's perceived as maybe a little easier. It's more accessible to the reader. But just in terms of maybe a kind of crisis in what nonfiction is, too. For instance, I could ask Chip, if you got a memoir from someone who like my alien abduction or my alien, my romance with alien. Or even one about limerick. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but how do you classify that? You would think, well, this is clearly fiction and yet it's being presented as a memoir. And there are books about reincarnation and all sorts of strange things that are passed off as, I suppose, a science of a kind. Uh, this is fiction, No, it's a good point. It? I, recently, I had a case where someone, I won't say who it is, um, but a well-known writer claimed that the rules for memoir are different than the rules for journalism or then or then for biography. That is, if I, if I remember it this way, then I am under no obligation. This is how it seemed to me at the time, and it's how it seems to me at the time of writing, and therefore I'm under no obligation to go back and check it. My 85-year-old mother, um, who lives in the same town I do, and with whom I'm very close and whom I admire, um, recently finished, after four years of work, uh, her memoir, her, her, her book of her life. And I love the title she gave it. Um, it's called My Autobiography As I Remember It. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so the disclaimer is right up front. <laughs> and the contract with the reader is very clear. So, and my sister and brother and I have each read this, and, and, um, and it's not exactly as we remember it. <laughs> and, and we've brought this to her, and she has the perfectly uh, the perfect defense and explanation for it. Well, it says, I remember it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's another book, though, that uh, I, I'm reminded of in this, uh, the works of uh, W.G. Siebold. I don't know yeah, how many right, of you are familiar right, with that. Yes. He is a, a writer, originally German, now living in England, who does something with memoir and does something with fiction so they are meshed so strangely that you feel that you really are in a dream. Mm -hmm. And he is t using the factuality of his life, mm -hmm. but there, uh, do you not have that impression yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that so it's a matter and, and of... And you read it, oh, and, and measure it against fiction, not against autobiography or against memoir, though. Yes, and you experience it as fiction. Experience it as yeah. fiction. There, I there is the, the desperately notorious case of Wilke Mirsky's fragments, um, which, uh, uh, what, what do you, I'd love to know what you all feel about that. Is it just simply a shanda? Is it just simply a piece of 
scandalous. Simon, why don't you remind uh, Will, Will Kamirsky, Will Skamir, um, well, I hope I get it right, but this is an extraordinary book um, which purported to be um, the memory of a boy in, con in Auschwitz, oh, yeah. certainly in the concentration oh, camp. Yes. He'd seen his father oh, yes. killed in front of him and who then was in the DP camps and ended up in Switzerland. And um, you'll remember, I'm sure, it, it, it all became terribly unraveled. It turned out in the end that he was actually Swiss. He'd, he was not Jewish. He'd never been in a concentration camp. And yet, um, it, it appeared at one, I met this man, actually, I must say, when he was touring with, with uh, if, he, if he was a, a crook, he was the most improbable crook, uh, or maybe I just don't know about, you know, probable, you know, historians don't, mm -hmm. clearly. Um, but uh, th there is some evidence, I don't know what I think about this, but there is some evidence, this is not the case, that actually at some point, he genuinely was in the grip of this delusion and thought that actually what he was writing had in some sense been an experience he'd gone through. Was that utterly disingenuous or, or again, another level yeah. of a disingenuousness? Recovered or had memory. that actually happened? I mean, Recovered memory. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, as, well as, as long as we're on it, let's go back to something I began with, the notorious case of Edmund Morris's Dutch. Ah. We, can, we can go back and, and I can, much of the, the things that you said about the art, all of you have said about the art of the historian, what the historian is supposed to do, I can say this is what Morris did. I'll go further. Um, I'll say, and I actually believe it, that the Hollywood section of that book is the single, from a literary standpoint, the single best part of that biography, and indeed that it told me more about Ronald Reagan than the rest of the book. I suddenly understood where, and that and perhaps the early parts about growing up, I suddenly understood where Ronald Reagan came from. As we all know, uh, the boom got lowered on Mr. Morris. It was felt that he had clearly gone over some line. And I, and and maybe we turn that open to the, the audience first, but I'd like to know what, what the panelists think. Uh, I, I found Edmund Morris really created a lot of problems for us. Uh, it was a very perplexing thing that he did, and uh, perhaps in this strange period when uh, everything is in flux and, and uh, the matter of what constitutes uh, literary genre has to be determined time and again. It all made sense, but but I I do think, and I have great respect for Edmund Morris, and I think the book is fabulously entertaining and even accurate in in large patches. But then what what he's done is when he deconstructs and fictionalizes his own book, he really does. And I'm very liberal-minded. People can do what they want, but it, but he creates a tremendous problem for the reader. He, he really does. I, I, I feel like he, and although he quoted me somewhere as saying that I had defended him, I don't know how that <laughs> happened, it, that I had outed biographers. I must have said that uh, in an off moment <laughs> to a reporter. You know, he outed biographers and, and made us realize, face up to the fact that we could never get at the truth. But that's not what he did, really. He created mm -hmm. a, a genre that undermines you at every point. Well, would it, have, would it have been so bad if he, if it was just clear what he'd been doing? Wasn't it maybe part of it that people felt hoodwinked? Well, yeah, but I, I think that he, his, his 
his own personal struggle to write this book interfered, and he finally had some kind of unconscious rebellion against the material. I mean, when you read uh, mm -hmm. the opening scene where he's actually with Reagan, it's great writing. It's really a, a masterpiece of, of a scene. He can write. He can create character, even real character he can create. Well, but it seems uh, like, then, according to a lot of what we've been saying tonight, that's all we need. No, but that is not all we need, Chip. We need that within, a, within an agreed framework, like rules. It's like why you have rules. You know, if, yeah, if he had had, if he had titled it as my mother titled her book, uh, <laughs> yeah, Reagan's, Reagan. Reagan's biography, as I imagine, as it. I imagine <laughs> it. No, it could have been, that would have been okay. It could have been, it could have been a quirky book if it was a. It could have been Quest for yeah. Corvo or something. Or I've even wondered. Then it wouldn't have I've sold as much as it, it did. Probably, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I even wonder if he had simply owned up in the footnotes. I think what drove some people around the bend was that yeah, when you I, when you trace this back into the back matter, the fiction continued. Right. Yeah, I think yeah that was really. And, and very disconcerting because when, when you are trying the most to go through this ex excruciatingly laborious process of uh, writing the proximative truth, then to find someone has, has made up stories in the middle and, and so it, 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 mm -hmm. it's undermining not in a productive way, I don't think. It's well, not liberating. I agree. I think speaking in a sort of a conservative way, those of us who write fiction and poetry are acknowledging that we're probably imagining and maybe even inventing a good deal. Though I personally would never falsify anything of, um, in terms of character, of plausibility. But still, there should, should be a kind of implied contract be with the reader. If you're a journalist, if you're a biographer, if you're a historian, I do think you have a moral and ethical obligation to tell the truth and not to be inventing. If you absolutely must invent, you could put quotation marks around it or put it in the footnote or something. Is this a conservative and unrealistic view in, in contemporary times? Our, maybe our standards of truth in journalism are much higher than they were, say, in the, in the 19th century. Well, that is true. Yes, much higher. They, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Having invited you to participate, why don't we do that? Um, that is to say, let's open it up to questions from the audience. Well, I mean, it's, that's, you're right, that it's not, it's not, you have to drop things out. You cannot go from morning to night, from morning to night uh, in, every, in anybody's life. So you have to drop things out. I think that there may be, I haven't, I haven't really thought about this before, but there may be different things, different kinds of facts that you drop out in fiction from what you drop out in biography because the ultimate purpose is different. And uh, I don't know, um, I think in fiction, the thing that is most crucial is, as you put it, the kind of the dream, the whatever it is that, the, the way the imagination goes and its driving force. In biography, the connection to 
the actual life and the truth <coughs> is so important that that will determine what you can drop out. I think so. I may be the only person on the panel, or perhaps even in the room, who is a subject of a biography. And it is a very interesting experience because we tend to live our lives, I think, without any great sense of pattern or design. I mean, we're really not fictitious characters. And yet, when, if you read a biography that's about yourself, and the biographer has done this sort of Leon Adele thing, looking for the figure in the carpet, and seeing a pattern or maybe a myth in your life, you, um, you start to see that somebody has invented you in order to conform to a possibly interesting story or a plausible story. And you feel that, you, at least I felt, I didn't really want to interfere with it. I mean, I'm, I'm on a panel with biographers, and they do not want to be interfered with by their subjects. <laughs> Yet I, I can sort of see in looking through this biography, which I thought was really very well done by a, a man young at the time, I think he ages in the process, <laughs> sort of a, a youngish man named Greg Johnson whose focus was really on criticism and literary criticism. He was really quite good. But I could see that he was extracting some things and just dropping out other things in order to make a kind of story. I don't know what the story was, a sort of Cinderella up from the ashes of upstate New York or <laughs> to Princeton, New Jersey or something like that. And it, it was a story that was plausible, and yet one could argue that it was a completely invented and imagined yeah. fairy tale kind of story that my life could be used to exemplify if you wanted to do that. Right. Did you feel it was you? I don't know how to answer it. My husband read it. I, I think we just sort of read it, and we thought, well, <laughs> It's like seeing a photograph of yourself in some way that you don't really re remember where you were and it doesn't look too much like you, but maybe it was you. <laughs> but I will, say, I will say one thing to the biographers who are on, on, on this panel with me. There is a lot that's confabulated. If people don't remember too much, let's say about Saul Bellow, they don't remember exactly what they talked about that evening, 
they will deliver some mem deliver memories to you because they don't want to disappoint you. They don't want to. You're telling me this now, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> I just turned you know, my book today. What you know this, <laughs> but you know that you know this. They also don't want to not be in a biography. They won't say, uh, Jim. I just don't remember one thing we talked about. They won't say that. They'll they'll seem to remember something. <laughs> And if it sounds good, you may put it in a biography, and it's it's confabulated. It's fiction. Well, well could I? I don't mean to. I don't want to be uh, boastful here, oh, but no, I I've no, come, uh, no I, <laughs> but I, okay. I I have I have come to believe over many years that you can tell, you can hear a truth uh, as accurately as you can hear a note of music, and that there this is not scientific. Nor is it even biographical, but it, but that there, that that there, a, an instinct develops by which you edit out what people are saying while they're saying it and arrive at certain essences that just are true. Very how hard to put that in your how would you How would you know but that? But how would you know that people lie on witness stands and they lie? in the throes of a delusion. <laughs> I mean, how would you know that? We can't, wait, no to read, can't no. wait to read this biography. <laughs> no, but actually, <laughs> Bellow said to me, I went to see him after 10 years of work on this book, and he said, uh, I drove up to his house in Vermont, he said, well, so tell me, what have you learned? <laughs> I said, actually what I've learned is that you can't know anyone. And I, I meant that. It's, as I said before, it's a humbling experience, but you can get at it. You, know, from you can angles. approach it. Mm -hmm. In the back there. Starting with the truisms that history is written by the winners, do the historians among you find that often the truth emerges from those who speak the loudest contemporaneously at the time or who have the best PR people? <laughs> um, <is> that direction. <laughs> Um, well, I think we've learned to. Uh, I, I don't. I, it's very hard unless one's talking maybe about, you know, the yellow, the golden horde or something. Actually, it's very hard to think of a situation in which um, the losers, through some way, through an oral tradition, um, through verse and ballads, they may not be in a position of issuing communiques, but we've learned to actually treat evidence in the most Catholic way, to think of evidence as something more than written, let alone printed texts. And uh, a history which simply kind of purports actually to deliver the reality of a past situation or, or the reality effect of a past situation simply in terms of official communiques will be hopeless, maybe a you know, transparent sham, won't even hold the attention, actually, if you're describing a conflict of some kind, um, or if you're describing some sort of important change, and history is at its best when it is the record of change in time, um, it, it, it's possible, very, you know, it, it's almost always possible to find markers of those who have won, and those who have lost, and those who have profited, and those who have suffered, at least I, I hope that's the case. I, I don't know if that helps answer the question. The, 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 the history that's simply delivered as really the kind of, um, you know, uh, sort of triumphal carry-on, really, of a particular side will, will be dull, actually. Well, thinking of the Wasserman-type situation, 
the what the what situation? Oh, Rashomon, yeah. Mm, sorry. Right. Right. That's the opposite from what I understood. The, the question is actually whether or not... Well, that's a, that's a very interesting question, actually. Um, whether or not... Um, uh, uh, histories, really, which um, are very uh, dogmatic about... Um, awarding credibility brownie points to Rashomon account C, but not to B or D, are curiously to, to invoke um, Russell's favorite word this evening, undemocratic, really. <laughs> it's not a question of actually the, 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 them being kind of bullying the reader to, uh, what really gets in my, up my nose, actually, is the sense in which there is a kind of authoritative professorial assumption that any intelligent reader will weight the relative credibility of stories in the same way as the author. And the most entrancing histories, really, are, are those which, without saying everything is relative, there is no truth, there is no falsehood, that I'm not interested in at all. Those are as boring as the kind of monovocal histories. Those histories which leave uh, the, the participatory you know, leave, leave it open to the reader to some extent to do some judging about what the Dutch have a wonderful word for it, a clopped, you know, what rings right, actually. And those are the ones that get my attention. Well, I can, I can start off. Maybe Russell and Millicent can, could add to this. We all have different ideas of portraiture. And certainly, in the, say, in the 17th century, 16th century, or basically, I think, in the past, there was the idea that if you're, pa you're painting the portrait of a specific individual, then there's a certain fidelity to the way this person looked and maybe a representative uh, effort in terms of his or her significance symbolically or culturally. Then as you move along, you know, rapidly moving along, let's leap to, to Picasso, the portraits are so very different. They're just violently subjective and people's eyes are on one side of their nose and so forth. And, and, yet, they, and yet they may exude a real personal identity that you could call poetic. And then the portraits of Francis Bacon, let's say, which I find very exciting in a kind of subliminal way. I probably feel um, a certain kinship with Francis Bacon. And that's probably the, probably the kind of portraiture that I would be interested in doing. And maybe in terms of my fiction, I'm, I'm moving toward or have moved in, in that direction. But I would not therefore be contemptuous or even critical of someone who just hated that, who said this is immoral or unethical. I would feel it was a purely aesthetic judgment and that I was doing something that maybe in some 
quarters is unethical. That the, the Francis Bacon sort of portrait is, can be so perverse and so unlike the real person, unless in a way it's the very essence of that person. But I think you all know what I'm saying, that there is a, there is a kind of region there that is very am ambiguous in terms of ethics. We really don't know. I think we can discuss it forever, even those of us who've written works of fiction where we, we transgress or tra trans, we're sort of trespassing, you know. Still, we would have to acknowledge that there probably is a reality there that maybe should be honored in some pristine way. I don't know. How do the other novelists feel? I think that's a that's a, a lovely analogy. I mean, to, to speak especially of Bacon, but just to speak of the history of portraiture and how it's changed and altered, and the use for the human body um, that artists have is being um, approximate to the use that a novelist might have for another kind of fact. Um, I'm, but I've just uh, it just crossed my mind. I was just thinking there are stories I have not told. There is material I have not used in fiction because it would be read by individuals um, as fact. For instance, there are members of my family um, and friends who I think have fascinating, wonderful stories. And if I use it in fiction, they would read it as fact, as being biography or about them. And so I've not done that. I've not written them. Uh, it would be radically, it would be misread to such a degree that it would hurt and embarrass these people whom I love. Um, and that, that, I think, tells me, at least, uh, about my relation to fact um, and, and, in a way, my relationship to also to my reader. If the reader can't see it as fiction, then I can't use it. Did you hear that? She's asking <coughs> the novelists why you would choose to inhabit someone who actually existed. Is that what, instead of mm -hmm. instead of just making it up out of whole cloth? Is that? Yeah. Well, I can give my answer. I saw a photograph of Norma Jean Baker when she was 17 years old in 1944. And she was a girl who looked like someone with whom I might have gone to junior high school. She even looked a little bit like my mother. She did not look like Marilyn Monroe. She didn't have the synthetic platinum blonde hair. She had brown hair that was very curly. She had a little heart locket. She's not glamorous. She's not beautiful, but she's very sweet, very pretty, and she was just smiling so hard. And I just, my heart just went out to her, and I thought, this is 1944. She's 17. She's not the quintessential American girl because she was very deprived economically and in other ways. Her mother was a paranoid schizophrenic who could never really be a mother to her. Her father never acknowledged her. She was, she was really powerless. She belongs to the, that region of, of humanity that uh, Dostoevsky spoke of as the insulted and injured. Anyway, so I had this feeling. It was just a very strong emotional feeling. I would like to write about this girl who, who is transformed into this iconic figure. But I was going to write a novel of about 175 pages. It was going to be sort of mythic and postmodernist, and it would end with the name being given to her, which is Marilyn Monroe. 
I would end with that name. That was my original intention. And I was going to imagine what her life would be like and the different steps, which seemed to me so just fascinating. It's a wonderful story. However, I did get involved, and eventually I wrote 1,400 pages. <laughs> that happens. I, I was going to write a, a magazine article about uh, John Brown um, and, and his uh, farm and his burial place because the, the question, uh, the trivia question of where does John Brown's body lie moldering, the answer to that is, is in North Elba, New York, uh, which was only a few miles from my house. And, um, and that would have been all right, except that uh, Brown entered, and this is my other favorite word tonight, entered my dreams. Um, and the image of John Brown um, became so powerful and irresistible to me that it was as powerful as, say, the image of my dead father. Um, or um, if it was a period of my life where I dreamed about Larry Bird. Um, and, uh, and it had a kind of emotional and personal resonance that, um, that only that face and the facts, uh, the outline of his life carried uh, for me. Um, and so I wrote about him that way, rather than make it a Romana Clay. Uh, and there were other reasons too. I mean, why you choose a particular body of material to work with, to make an, a story out of, um, is very complex. And many of the reasons are just, um, as you say, you know, you, 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 the, the pressure in your ears or changes or something like that. It's, it's, it's just intuitive. Also, um, go ahead. I think there is also the question of investigating a particular era in time. In other words, you not only inhabit a character, you inhabit mm. a world. Mm. And that's something, they, there are ways that you can get to the truth of that world in a very, I mean, I think through this kind of imagining mm. that are very surprising. And so, so you were back in the mm. 1830s, 40s, 40s. Yeah, 50s. but the world that I was trying to gain the access to really is my own world and uh, just as you know sometimes we travel to another place in order to understand our home more clearly um, I think we often travel to other times in order to understand our own time more clearly and and that was certainly one of the, the reasons for going there and trying to look at the world through John Brown's eyes isn't that something that we're always trying to do I mean really isn't that where, where it begins however mm. far you travel from your own autobiography that mm. you're really looking for that connection mm -hmm. to your own life and mm -hmm. to find some way of expressing it. You've been well, reading bad history. Yeah. <laughs> but you wouldn't want to read um, um, Homer in order to understand the Trojan War. Um, I, I think that it's a bad idea to read Cloud Splitter in order to understand history as history. Um, and uh, it's one of the objections I've had to some of the reviews of Cloud Splitter, which have objected to the book because of its historical inaccuracies as they see it. Um, and it was historians particularly who feel territorial about um, um, particular period and, and characters and so forth and, and, uh, and held me to the standard of history. Um, 
if, uh, if you read it for history, I think you are making a mistake. I, I, I lied. I'd like to <laughs> frequently. I'd like to take take both points of view. I think I think Simon Shama is right. Is that there is some wonderful history of the Civil War. I think in fact it's probably in American history the best period. It's attracted the most literary writers and, and some of the really the best writing. On the other hand, I will say that I wouldn't have. I didn't think I wanted to read a biography of John Brown. I wouldn't have read it. I wouldn't. I I wanted to read a novel by Russell Banks, mm -hmm. and I learned I learned a bunch of stuff along the way. So I think, I think there's no right or wrong. I think we should be grateful however this stuff comes our way. I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Well, I'm sorry.